Should any book be banned? Can we forbid a certain kind of knowledge? Just the other day, the American Library Association released a report showing that attempts to ban books in the United States set a new record in 2022, doubling the book banning efforts from the year before, which was already a huge increase over the year prior. These numbers include calls to remove books from schools and also from public libraries. But could book banning backfire? Since you listen to this podcast, there's a chance you also listen to the show Freakonomics Radio. As they put it, it's a show about the hidden side of everything and features a behavioral science perspective on life's odds and ends. Well, you can trace that podcast back to a book also called Freakonomics, written by Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner, which came out in 2005. It was a bunch of essays on economic analyses of curious questions about how society works. And one of those essays quickly became controversial. Now, I'm simplifying and being a little loose here, but the authors shared some data suggesting that a significant drop in crime rates could be tied to Roe v. Wade. In other words, homicide rates dropped like 18 years after Roe, which would be right around the time kids who might otherwise have been born reach an age where you could see evidence of them getting caught up in crime. Legalized abortion lowers the homicide rate. So the implication goes. And, you know, suggesting that abortion has benefits to society is obviously going to sound an alarm, and plenty of people were not thrilled. And here's where I enter the story, like, in a very tiny way. <laughs> I was wrapping up high school when this book came out, and a board member in my suburban Chicago school district wanted to strike Freakonomics from a required reading list, directly citing the part about abortion— the suggestion gave way to a rowdy board meeting, and ultimately the book was not banned in our district. But the authors of the book caught wind of all this and offered to send some signed copies of the book to students in the district. And I was like, hell yeah, <laughs> the district can't decide what I can and can't read. I'm going to read this book. And sure enough, I was able to claim a copy of the book, read it cover to cover, and it's still on my shelf today. So my brush with book bans was pretty mild. <laughs> I'll give that to you. But I can tell you exactly what it felt like to hear that someone was trying to tell me I wasn't allowed to read this book. I wanted to read the book more than I ever would have otherwise. And here I am, 17 years later, a social scientist, possibly driven by the intriguing social science in Freakonomics. And that's a pretty typical story. Time and again, book sales soar when someone's trying to censor them. There are even a few psychology experiments from the 70s that had a similar idea. The experimenters would tell people, you know, our plan for this study was to play a speech arguing that police should never be allowed on university campuses, but the review board here told us we were not allowed to play that speech for students. Wouldn't you know it, students who weren't going to get to hear this speech ended up just agreeing more with the censored opinion. Tell people that they can't do, feel, or think certain things. And those are exactly the things that they're going to want to do, feel, and think. It's pretty fundamental. Like, go back to the biblical story of Adam and Eve. On day one of humanity, God says, hey, whatever you do, don't eat that fruit. And they're like, whoa, back off, bro. We're definitely going to eat that fruit now. So why do we do this? Well, hang on, just like... Two minutes, because <laughs> this whole episode is talking to the guy who knows. Music 
You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell, and I recently talked to Dr. Ben Rosenberg, who's an assistant professor of psychology at Dominican University of California. And one of the things he knows a lot is this thing called psychological reactance theory. In 2018, he published a paper titled, A 50-Year Review of Psychological Reactance Theory, colon, Do Not Read This Article. And if you don't get the joke now, you will by the end. Banning books, telling people what to do and think, forbidden romance, these are all things that are likely to arouse reactance. So to get a better idea of what that means and why we should care, let's jump into my conversation with Ben Rosenberg. No better place to start than what is reactance theory. Uh, It's one of those things that it's Oh, it's been around for so long, but it kind of has crept under the surface. I, I get the impression that it's like a theory everybody knows in vague terms, but is not something that like people really have grappled with. Like you have engaged with reactance theory, <laughs> so you you've come to know it very closely. Uh, so what is it? If you were to just sort of elevator pitch reactance theory, what's the premise? Yeah, I mean reactance theory. I think to your point is similar in, in many ways to. Um, cognitive dissonance, which I know we'll talk about a bit later. The difference, to, to your point, or a difference, is that cognitive dissonance is, is everywhere, right? It's exploded. People talk about it in sort of common language, common conversations. Reactance, that, that hasn't happened quite as much. So the basic sort of tenet is, is relatively clear, and I think it's somewhat um, commonsensical on, on its face, right? So the basic tenet is basically that Anything that threatens people's freedom or that reduces people's freedom, eliminates their freedom um, to choose what they believe, what attitudes they hold, how they're going to behave, at least has the potential, doesn't mean it's going to, but has the potential to arouse what Jack Brem called reactance, right? To arouse this motivational state, um, the aim of which, again, it's a motivational state, the aim of which is to get their freedom back. And so, again, the, the underlying thing, this underlying reactance piece is a, I always grapple with whether to call it a negative motivational state, right? But I think it is considered relatively aversive, similar to how dissonance is considered aversive. We don't like how it feels to have our freedom threatened, right? To, to have our freedom taken away. And so it motivates our, our, and we'll talk about the strategies by which this can occur, but it motivates people to try to get their freedom back, right? To try to recover whatever lost freedom has been lost or, or whatever freedom might potentially be lost. I, it might help also to get a little concrete too. Freedom is a very abstract <laughs> sort of a thing. And you could imagine like, yeah, what do you mean you, you stripped me of my freedoms? That, that might yeah. evoke this like extreme sort of idea yeah. when it's, I think probably often more mundane than that. Like we probably experience something like this pretty regularly. And so can you give some examples of like the sorts of things we mean when we say people feel as though their freedom has been threatened? Totally. And and, and it really can run the gamut. I mean, from from your point, like it could be something as mundane as me telling my four-year-old he can't have his 12th cookie for the day, right? And like that's Mm -hmm. the freedom that he feels like he should have Mm -hmm. as a four-year-old. Like, man, I need to eat all the cookies. Uh, that could induce reactance, right? To him, that's something that is important. It's valued. And if I tell him he can't do it, he might lash out. He might hit me. He might throw something at me because he thinks it's going to help him or insult me, right? Because he thinks it's going to help me regain his freedom. The other end of the spectrum are things that people would consider more 
of value. And that's not to say that a cookie isn't valuable to a four-year-old, <laughs> but that might, might more broadly be considered more valuable. So I've obviously, as you can imagine, been thinking about this stuff a lot in the context of COVID and mandates about mm-hmm. health, mandates about mask wearing and, and vaccination, all this stuff. So that would be a more, I think, extreme or um, maybe valued piece of, of reacting, potential place of reactants, right? Where if somebody's telling you what to do in that context, in other words, threatening what you perceive as your bodily freedom to decide how you want to treat yourself, that behaviors you want to undertake to protect yourself or not, those kind of threats can, can be more, more extreme and, and could have a, a commensurate response, right? That is also more extreme than perhaps the four-year-old's response to getting his cookie taken away. Mm-hmm. Similar to that, it's reminding me of, uh, you know, the aversive effect of people telling you how to like plan out your diet. Like you have to eat this, like you need to eat better. When someone, you know, if someone says like, you need to eat healthier, you go, well, screw you. I don't need to do anything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's that kind of like mundane, like every day, no one's trying to strip you of your freedom per se, but you experience it as like, you can't tell me what to do. I, that's my inner monologue for reactants yeah. is you can't tell me what to do. It's, yeah. Does that capture most of it, you'd say? That kind of totally. Mentality? Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's the the lay, you know, crux of it is like you can't tell me what to do. That that's that's the response, right? That we don't like that feeling of being told what to do or be having certain excuse me, beliefs or behaviors mandated. And that that's the mm-hmm. response. Yeah. You're not the boss of me, you can't tell me what to do. Are there certain things about which people feel especially passionate about that freedom? Like is any any way in which it feels like someone is controlling me strikes me as bad? Or is it a particular kind of case of control that people don't like? It's it's a gradient, right? It's it's a it's a spectrum. Um so there are certain situations, certain people who could have that sort of feeling of freedom threat, that reactants don't tell me what to do, aroused, perhaps in any situation. And uh, there are some that would argue that people vary, like on a trait level, in terms of how much reactants they sort of carry around with them into any given situation. What I think Jack Brum would argue is what's most, the, the key and what's most important is the um, centrality of whatever freedom is being threatened to somebody and to, in terms of how they conceive themselves, the importance, basically. Um, the, to steal a term from Bill Crano and my advisors, the vested interest that somebody, somebody has in a given freedom. Like, how much do I care about whatever is being threatened? So again, the cookie to a four-year-old, he probably gets over that pretty fast. Yeah, of course he cares about eating another cookie. Eh, he can let that go pretty quickly. But somebody telling me how I have to behave in terms of maybe, um, like you said, your, your diet, right? Or something that's a bit more central to how you behave or, you know, mandating, oh, you have to marry this person or you have to move to this place, right? Those are more impactful. They sort of touch more aspects of our lives. So in general, those are the things that are really going to arouse reactions. And I actually think that's a, a relatively common misconception about the theory that w- we almost forget to take into account this importance piece, the centrality piece, like that's really going to have an impact. Um, and that to, to Jack Brand, to the roots of the theory, I think this is actually pretty interesting. This is in the sixties, right? This is before there were many people talking about evolutionary psychology and Jack Brand actually talks about the reasoning for people wanting, feeling like they, they need to maintain their freedom 
is because they, they want the ability to make choices that are the most valuable to them in terms of survival value. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if I believe that that's at the root of reactants, but I think that is an important piece to throw in. That's an important consideration um, that, you know, there are certain things that if they're threatened should be more impactful to us and should arouse more of this motivation to get our freedom back. You you mentioned that uh, this sort of was born in the 60s, so that's one bit of context. The other yeah. is that it was in the United States where this was born, a place where, like, freedom is kind of the name of the game, like, totally. <laughs> written into the founding documents. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. And so do we have a sense – the, the impression I get is that the theory says this is like a human desire for freedom, to your point about, like, you know, evolutionary mechanisms – it, do we have any sense that that's true or do we go, this actually is a lot more culturally sensitive than Brem made it out to be? Yeah. I, my answer would be, would be both. So the evidence that I've seen, and unfortunately, as with many things in social psych, as you know, there's not enough cross-cultural evidence. But the, the evidence I know of that's compared reactants cross-culturally typically does the independent versus interdependent thing, right? And to your point, you'd expect perhaps that people in independent cultures like the U.S. or Canada would be more likely to experience reactants in like a wide array of circumstances and people from more collectivistic or inter interdependent cultures maybe they experience reactants differently so the evidence that i've seen suggests that people from both cultures do indeed experience reactants that freedom threats can arouse this motivation but that it's different things right so people in the u.s people with this independent kind of cultural bent uh or self-conception tend to experience reactants in the typical way that we think of it. Like somebody threatens my freedom to choose for me, that's what causes me to be reactant. In more collectivistic cultures where the focus tends to be a little bit more outward, right, rather than inward, I actually, or people actually tend to become more reactant when their, their close social groups, their close social ties have their freedom threatened, right? So it's more of a vicarious, if you will, experience, right? So seeing the freedom of somebody who I care about being threatened, that arouses reactance in me. So the process does seem to be universal, but it's different things that seem to arouse it. Hmm. It's similar to some of the dissonance work yeah. cross-culturally, where mm -hmm. they show that like, mm -hmm. you know, back to Brem, like early dissonance stuff is like, when I make choices, that arouses dissonance, I resolve dissonance. And there's a question of, oh, is that just like an individualistic thing that I, when I make choices? And it seems like in other cultural contexts, inconsistency is still aversive. It just is a question of what is inconsistent with what, right? And so interesting. It seems like the same sort of story. But it comes back to like freedom threats just seem globally aversive, which makes adaptive sense, I guess. I, I, I'm going to do something that I almost never do, which is uh, quote you to yourself, <laughs> which is uh, scary. I, I don't, I don't want to put it on the spot. But when I was reading the the review of reactants that that you co-wrote, there's a point at which, when you're describing how Brem thinks about it, you write that people don't desire freedom, but its loss is motivationally arousing, which surprises me a little bit that that the proposal would be that people don't actually care about having freedom until it's gone. Is that like, what do you make of that? Is that, does that seem right still? Or what do you think he meant by that? Yeah. I, I, I love, first of all, I love that you dug that up. Um, I mean, I, I, I know that quote is sort of buried in there, but we actually took a great amount of care to include that. Um, and, and part of the reasoning is that, 
Brem was really clear about his, in his writing in the 66 book, and then him and his wife did a, a review in 81 of kind of the early reacting scholarship. They were really clear in multiple places that reactance theory isn't about people seeking out freedom, right? Looking to gain freedom, but rather what happens when freedoms that we perceive we have are lost, right? So, and, and I actually think that's kind of a, a key thing that's often overlooked about, about the theory, that it's not about us looking to get more stuff in the way of freedoms or, you know, to get more ability to act however I want. It's, it's more of this baseline, like, I feel like I should be able to do the things, believe the things that I want. And when that baseline ability to make, again, to make it evolutionary, to make the choices that are, are best for my survival, when that is lost, that's what arouses reactance, right? So I'm not going around seeking freedom, but I'm trying to protect the freedoms that I feel like I have. I like the saying that you, you don't realize what you have until it's gone. Uh -huh. People take it for granted. And and the way it seemed like he was defining this, what, what is it, freedom? I forget what they were called, freedom acts or whatever, free behaviors, was that like, these are behaviors that ordinarily you have experienced agency mm -hmm. over. And so there may be some things where you go, well, I have never been in control of this. And so like, for someone to remind me of that, I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> like, I don't have a say in this. It's when I sort of have gotten used to feeling as though I have control over this, that it's really aversive to suddenly feel like you're trying to take that control away from me. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. He, he was clear about the, the free behaviors, right? It was stuff that we've done in the past that we think we should have agency over, as you said. There are free behaviors I perceive in the present, right? So things that are in my repertoire of behaviors that I think I have control over enacting now or beliefs that I think I have control over holding now or things that I might think in the future, that might be a good thing to do, or that might be something I would do. So it's any of those three time points, right? And again, it's not trying to, to build up a cadre of more freedoms. It's the perception that at any of those three time points, I have or had a freedom that somebody is now trying to remove from me. Uh, do you, this is reminding me of another question I had, which is that word reactance is just bizarre to me. <laughs> do, do you have any sense of where that came from? It's it's one of those words that it's like you hear it defined in this context only. And then suddenly one day you go, what a weird <laughs> way to refer to this. Do you have any idea? Yeah. Like, is there some... I wish I wish there was like some cool, <laughs> you know, cool story yeah. or something. I, yeah. I, I don't, unfortunately, know. Um, one, I guess perhaps interesting corollary is folks in clinical psychology have, have talked about reactants or similar um, similar phenomena as well in, in, in therapy, right? So that like a client will become reactant to a going along with the therapist suggestions. And they often use the term resistance to kind of encapsulate what Brem's talking about when we refer to reactants. So I think that that's a nice, uh, and actually they, folks in clinical psych often use those terms interchangeably. Um, like you'll see in the in the title of some papers, they're clearly looking at reactants in clinical psych. They'll say resistance. So uh, that's a nice corollary. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that's a perfect, uh, perfect, perfect like substitution, right? Um, but that does come to mind. But I, yeah, I wish I wish I knew where the term itself, reactants, came from. Yeah, it, it may just be that, like you know, at the time that was a common way to refer to something like this that we've lost. But I just, it's always like, it just strikes me as like, why do we have to call it that? Like we need a word for this. <laughs> 
about reactants. That what a bizarre one. Um, okay, so uh, one of the domains in which I care a lot about reactants and have thought about it a lot, and I know that you have too, is in the domain of persuasion. And sometimes when I've told like students about this, I sort of pitch it as the very act of persuasion is an act of control, right? Like, and so, you know, one way to kind of get us into this <laughs> second half of things is like, is persuasion by definition the kind of thing that arouses reactance or does it not have to be? Like, do, do we think of persuasion as fundamentally in the interest of taking people's freedom away? <laughs> or like, why would people think that if that's not necessarily the truth? Yeah, I, I've grappled with this question a lot. I think there there's a, a world in which you could portray or perceive pers any act of persuasion, um, as you said, to be an act of taking people's freedom away. And there is some interesting research on this in the reactance realm. So um, there was a meta-analysis and a bunch of other studies looking at, this is fairly early on, uh, looking at the persuasive intent of a reactance-inducing agent. So the freedom-threatening person, usually they were like, you know, some cool old-school experimental design where uh, the, the confederate of the study was like making it really clear that they were trying to get the participants to come over to my side of this issue. And it was always about something cool like, you know, putting fluoride in the water or like nuclear mm. weapons yeah. or, you know, something very, very like of the time, which I always love reading about. Um, but they did some cool studies on this, right? And they, and they indeed find that the more obvious the persuasive intent of the um, freedom threatening agent, the more reactant people become, right? So it seems that there's a gradient. I, I, if I, if you, you know, force me to answer this, which you are, I, I would say that not all persuasion is going to arouse reactants. And again, I, I think that a lot of the studies, particularly from communication, where a lot of the reactants persuasion stuff has happened over the last 20 plus years, um, you'd say that not every communication attempt or every persuasion attempt has to arouse reactants, um, but that some certainly can. Um, and that there is a, a way in which you, you could, again, make the case, as you did, that all persuasive attempts are efforts of, of freedom, freedom threat, right, or, or attempts to control. Um, I think I, I would tend to side, I think, with the communication folks on this one, that there's a, it's a gradient, that um, certain worded or certain framing of messages is more likely to arouse or induce reactants. Um, so when messages sort of to the point of the earlier studies, when the, re the persuasive intent of a message is clear, when it's obvious that a message is really, the only intent here is to persuade you, I think in those cases, it's likely that they'll induce reactants. And the, the main paradigm for studying reactants these days is, is messages, as you and I have talked about offline, where they uh, modify the type of language that's used in the message. So, you know, one condition, the, the heavy reactants, very threatening condition, includes like very harsh language, very strongly worded language. Andy, you must put me on your podcast, right? And the other condition is, is meant to contrast that. It's a little softer, right? It's not a demand. It's still clearly a, a persuasion attempt. It's an attempt to bring you over to my side. But it's worded much less harshly. It's, it's Andy, you should consider having me on your podcast, right? And so there's a clear difference there in the semantics of how it's presented. Um, and I mean, again, the evidence is is clear that those really harshly worded 
messages arouse more reactants than the more softly worded ones. I would caveat it, though, by saying those softly worded ones, it's not to say they don't arouse any reactants, right? I think they still have the potential to arouse reactants. Um, but the, if you really want to get people riled up, show them a harshly worded message threatening a viewpoint or forcing them to take on a viewpoint uh, maybe that they, they don't want or that they disagree with, um, then you'll, so you'll see some, some stuff happening. Mm-hmm. Do, do you get the sense, like, so those strongly worded messages are very useful for research purposes. Do you get the sense that they're realistic? Every time I see those studies, I go, when would anyone ever do this? <laughs> you, you read them and they're like, if you listen to my arguments, you will be forced to agree with me that you must brush your teeth, not once, but twice a day. And you go, who's, who's out there <laughs> saying you are compelled to believe me? Yeah. Maybe, maybe it is more common than I yeah. imagine. But how important is it that, that we think of those as realistic? Is, is that what reactance looks like in the world? Or is that just how we're bottling it up? I think in this case, it's how we're bottling it up. And I, I would argue, and I was going to, I think, say this earlier on. I'm glad it's coming up now. I would argue that we need to sort of move away from this, this messaging paradigm. I think it's served as a really nice testing ground for some of these ideas. And, and clearly, you know, we've seen that with these message effects. But to your point... Where's the experimental realism um, in, in these studies, both in terms of how much people believe them, right, their believability, like, to your point, somebody could see these messages, you know, demanding that you floss or demanding that you do X, Y, Z. And it's like, man, this is, this is bullshit, you know, like, nobody's really going to do this in the real world. And they might just dis- disregard it. Um, and so that, I think, is is important. How much are people buying into the, these messages? But then the second piece, to more to your point, is like, how much are these testing what actually happens in the real world? Um, and so I, I would say, and like I'm, I'm trying this futilely right now with, with my lab, is we need to at least to some degree go back to the old school reactant studies, which actually introduced a freedom to people and then removed it, right? So it was like the whole McGill is happening right in the context of this experimental study. You come to my lab, I convince you that you have some freedom. You're going to get a choice of, and again, these studies are in the 60s and 70s and they're great. It's like, (laughs) you're going to get your choice of these records. Like, Mm -hmm. which one of these five records do you want? And, you know, people say, ooh, I really want this one, right? And then later on... I thought you were going to say, like, we'll give you this many cigarettes. How many cigarettes do you want? Well, (laughs) it's funny because so many of of the examples in Brem's 66 book are about cigarette smoking. Like, so many of the freedom threat examples are about changing gender norms and gender roles (laughs) and about Mm -hmm. cigarette smoking. Um, And it's actually a spectacular read. I'm sure nobody out there will go read it, but it's a great... It's a short book, but it's a great read. It's the same in in Festinger's Dissonance book. There's a bunch of smoking examples. And I put out this YouTube video years ago, and routinely people comment like, I don't get the smoking example. And I go, I know, it's just, that's the thing Festinger used to describe it. And I get it. It's changed since then. (laughs) Anyhow, but give people a choice. Uh, You can, which records do you want? Right. So which which record do you want? They go through some, you know, Michigas, it's part of the, supposedly part of the study, comes to the end and they say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. We actually gave away, and, and they always make it sort of funky, but we gave away their first choice, your second choice of record, and we've only got these couple of records left, right? And then they sort of observe, well, what do they do? Which one do they choose? And one of the key findings was they end up 
like derogating the record that they initially wanted, but is now being threatened. They say, oh, I actually didn't want that one. Like Joni Mitchell, nobody likes Joni Mitchell. The, my, my original fifth choice, the Rolling Stones, that's the one I really want, right? So they're, they're, cha- they're changing their choice to regain their freedom, um, was the thought. So it would be really great, I think, for the field to get back to some studies like that, where we're actually threatening people's freedom. And, you know, there's ethical issues, there's IRB issues. So there's issues with that. But I think in terms of to circle, you know, long circle back to your point, to get back some of the experimental realism, to get at some of these real contexts that might be threatening people's freedoms in their everyday lives, I, I think it's going to be, you know, something like that is, is what's going to have to happen. The version of that that I thought it was going to, which does feel realistic, is you give people a choice and then you say, you know, out of these 10, which do you want? And I go, oh, this one sounds great. And I go, oh, actually, we're out. Here, you can have this one. And you go, well, wait, you're not going to let me pick now (laughs) what I'm going to get? Like, now you're deciding for me? I feel like that happens a lot, too, where they're like, oh, here, take this. And you go, well, I don't – maybe that's fine, but I don't love that you're the one who decided (laughs) what it was that I am supposed to have, Um, which I actually want to – Speaking of circling back, one thing I think that I missed or we missed together was like what happens when these freedoms go away. So we've we've talked a lot about like people don't like it, but like, okay, boohoo, you don't like it. <laughs> and it sort of seems like, oh, you just disregard it or whatever. But the I mean the what I think makes reactants especially interesting is the implication that you might actually be provoking exactly the wrong kinds of responses to it. So what happens when we take people's freedoms away, or at least people feel as though that's happened? Right. So so the response that you mentioned, the boomerang effect, as it's called, right, is this, this desire to do the opposite, right? Somebody's telling you, hey, Andy, you should just eat salads for the next month. And that's you saying, nah, you can't tell me what to eat. I'm going to eat donuts for the next month mm-hmm. instead, right? So that's I will the never kinda, eat a salad again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. Uh, that's the classic sort of behavioral response that, that folks love to study. It's, again, with these lab studies, easier to gauge than it is with, say, an online, you know, MTurk study. It's, it's harder to gauge those boomerang effects if you're not looking at real people in the real world. So we can look at like behavioral intentions, like, oh, I intend to do the opposite of what you're telling me, which we do often, which is great, not quite as fun as the actual behavior. I think what's what's cool and what's interesting about reactants is there are other responses that people may have as well, right? So there's an emotional response that people might have. They might get angry. Like, you can't, like to your point from earlier, you can't tell me what to do, like, right? That pisses me off. That makes me upset when somebody's telling me that I can't act in the way that I want to act or believe the thing that I want to believe. And there's also a more cognitive piece as well, where like my, my thinking about the freedom threatening agent might change. So I might come to derogate the source of the freedom threat. Like, Oh, I hate that Andy. He told me that I can only eat salads for the next week or whatever. Um, and there's also the thinking sort of like in the experiments I was describing before that might change our perception of the freedom Right. We may this is sort of dissonancy in a way. Right. Like we may change how much we actually wanted the freedom to allay some of the reactants. Right. We may convince ourselves, well, I didn't really want the Joni Mitchell record. I actually wanted this other one. And if my top choice isn't being threatened anymore, or if I can convince myself of that, then like eh, I don't need to feel reactant anymore. Right. It kind of gets rid of of some of those reactant uh, uncomfortable feelings. 
yeah, if it's not a boomerang, because part of the whole theory is that people are now seeking to reassert their freedom, right? Like you've taken this away. I need to prove to myself and others yeah. that I call the shots. And the boomerang is just this very satisfying way of doing that, right? It's <laughs> like, oh, you tell me I can't yeah. do this? Well, guess what I want to do? I'm going to do exactly yeah. that thing that you told me not to do. And that's like very freedom uh, asserting uh, in the same way that the kid goes, oh, you know, I can't have that cookie. Well, I'm going to just scream and run around. You can't stop mm-hmm. me from doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get to choose that that's my reaction. And so it sounds like it, it almost seems anticlimactic in some of these to just go like, I just don't agree with your point. Would you say that satis- – like would Brem be satisfied with that kind of study that just goes – and then people do not change their minds in the face of this new information. Is that freedom reasserting or is that something else? It's – Probably not quite freedom reasserting in the behavioral sense. I think it, it can be freedom reasserting in the more cognitive or maybe affective emotional sense, right? So maybe it's not, and, and you know, maybe I haven't totally thought this out, but maybe we can um, almost rank these, these things in terms of their ability to bring my freedom back, right? And so the top rank is do the thing that I've, I'm being told not to do, right? Do the opposite. Uh, so that's number one, right? That's like the guaranteed one-to-one substitution, get my freedom back. And then maybe on a slightly lower tier, to your point, are these other options. It's like, well, in the absence of my ability to do that, like, you know, if I am a four-year-old and I really don't have that much control over my life and I can't eat the damn cookie, I'm going to do something else because I can't do that, right? So I'll run around or I'll, I'll tell dad he's a poo-poo head or you know, whatever it is, like these things maybe aren't quite as good as doing the thing that's being threatened, but they serve as a substitute to kind of get me through, to help me, you know, move on to the next thing and and not get hung up on these negative feelings or these aversive feelings of reactants. Yeah, if you sort of right, it's not this domain is threatened. Like you've you've taken it all away. <laughs> I yeah. can't do anything. But certainly there are other ways in which I have freedom. And so I'm just gonna yeah. like cash in on those for now to yeah. remind myself that I have that ability. Yeah. And, and Brem, and Brem talked about that. He said like, if freedom is threatened in this one important domain, but you can't feasibly get it back, one way to get rid of the reactants is to reassert your freedom in a different domain as you're talking about. That's one of these, and, and there's several of these things, but there's one of those things in the Brem's theory that never was really fully tested. So I, I don't talk about it that much. It's hard to like really hang your hat on that one and say, yes, this is definitely what happens. I think it does make a lot of intuitive sense. Um, and, you know, perhaps we, we would find it if there was better evidence for it. But it is something that Brum theorized that he talked about, right? And again, it do, that does make some sense. So why why do you do any of this? What is it about rea- like you, you show up to grad school day one and you go, I'm interested in freedom. <laughs> like where, what what sets you down this path? It was actually a, a circuitous route. I mean, I, I didn't start with reactants. I actually didn't get interested in reactants until about maybe three years until uh, before my, my, I wrote my disc. Um, and I had been doing some similar but but not totally related stuff and sort of the motivate kind of crossover between motivation, goal-directed behavior, but also some persuasion stuff. And um, my advisor, Jason Siegel, was doing we're trying to make a, a theory basically and i don't know if you've ever tried to come up with a theory andy but it's a shitload of work and yeah. <laughs> uh it, it's it's really fun and interesting man we were like you know i'm a second year grad students were, and we're like sitting 
outside of a coffee shop that has a black window and we're like drawing literally mm-hmm. we have these like erasable bars we're like drawing constructs and arrows and all this crazy stuff and so we're like trying to come up with this theory which actually we're you know side note we're getting some co- really cool daily diary longitudinal data on right now which hopefully we'll get out there in the ether at some point so we were doing some kind of theory building stuff and we published a couple of papers on it it was fun it's interesting but you know, the, the sense in grad school as you near the end is like, I need something of my own to grab onto. And uh, I'm talking, I was just kind of shooting ideas around with my advisor what to do. And he was like, what about reactants? Like reactants is cool. <laughs> like I know there's a lot of stuff on it. It's a nice, you know, melding between motivation and persuasion, kind of two things you're interested in. And I was like, all right, let me go, let me go read about it. You know, I had sure I'd learned about it in my overview of social psych class or whatever in grad school, but I hadn't really thought much about it um before that so he's like just go read some stuff you know so i go and i find the review and i'm like intrigued enough that i order brem's 1966 book off of amazon and you know i just start reading and i'm like this is pretty fascinating stuff um and what what really kind of wrote me or really got me interested in was the lack of what what i perceived at least as a lack of people looking at moderators of reactance effects right and so Brem talked a lot about this important piece that we were talking about before, this like, how vested am I in the freedom that's being threatened? Really, really mattering. But people hadn't looked a ton at other things that moderated this relationship. It was like freedom threat, reactance, boomerang effects, other stuff happens. Nobody had looked, or few people had looked much at what happens in the intermediary there. Like what else is occurring? Um, so, you know, what are the things that might make it so in this context or in this affective state, like, I don't feel that reactant when I'm feeling happy or whatever, or if I'm feeling, um, in a certain state, do I feel more reactant than I might normally, right? Nobody really looked at that stuff. It was like, you're a a blank slate. And if somebody threatens an important freedom, then you become reactant, right? There wasn't a lot of other work. So that's what really got me interested in. Um, I, I looked at some looked at uncertainty as one potential moderator for my for my dis, which was cool. And of course, that finally got published like you know, six years after my dissertation, which you know is how it goes. Um, and so that was fun, right? That sort of sent me down this road to like, okay, let's think about what are some other things that might moderate this portion of the relationship. And then the other piece, and this was sort of a zoomed out motivational look at reactants as, and again, this is a motivation theory, in my view at least, zoomed out look at, well, if reactants is considered like a negative emotion or sorry, negative motivational state, which tends to sort of narrow our focus, what other effects might it have? Like, are there other things that happen when we're reacting beyond the few that we've talked about? Beyond trying to get my freedom threat, freedom back, uh, you know, feeling angry, maybe these kind of cognitive impacts. Like, is there other stuff that happens? Like, can we consider this truly sort of core inconsistency-based motivational state that has broader ranging effects? And so those things at sort of the, the boundaries of the theory because it seems so well established was really like kind of, you know, fired up my, my scientific, uh, mm-hmm. juices, I guess. So, yeah. So, so in terms of it being a motivational theory, uh, sometimes that word motivation, the way psychologists use it, isn't always super intuitive. So what do you mean exactly by saying it's important we think about reactance as a motivational theory? To me, motivation is about, and I think 
hopefully folks would agree it's different than the the um you know the common way of using motivation motivation is about what prompts us to act and then what keeps us persisting in our in our actions right and so when i think about reactants i think of it as something that could prompt us to act right getting freedom removed is something that could could motivate me could push me toward action and it's also something that could make me persist right if i'm unable to get my freedom back that feeling being motivational might be something that makes me keep doing stuff whether it's asserting a different freedom whether it's changing how i feel that feeling might keep me acting right keep me persisting so those are the two things right it's like what prompts me to act in the first place and then what keeps my action going what makes me persist in whatever behavior it is and so again i think reactance fits fits the bill um if you if you think about it from that perspective mm -hmm. in that freedom is a goal or agency is a goal so that when it's when we're trailing behind we feel like we're not there right. that incentivize or not incentivizes us but it prompts us to move toward yeah. that state yeah. uh but then weirdly when we have it so in the in the maintain in the maintenance portion mm -hmm. you know if we said that people aren't thinking about freedom day to day does it play that role that like keeps me acting role or is it only once it's gone it prompts a behavior but doesn't sustain a behavior Brem would argue, and I think I would agree, that it's, it's when it's gone, right? When we notice that mm -hmm. inconsistency. And, and in general, goal setting works in the same way, right? It's the inconsistency between where we want to be and where we are now that, that motivates and sustains behavior. And I think in this case, reactants would, would act similarly, right? If we're not going around trying to gather up freedoms, it's, it's noticing the inconsistency. It's noticing that, wait a second, I had that freedom, and now somebody's telling me I can't do it. I can't have it anymore. That's what's going to prompt us to try to close that gap, as you said. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now I think everybody is on the same page to appreciate uh, the, the title of this paper that, that you co-wrote. The culmination of your advisor saying, go read these, <laughs> just read a couple things. Uh, right. And all of a sudden, we have a sweeping review of reactants. So anyone listening hopefully should understand why this is a beautiful title. A 50-year review of psychological reactance theory. Do not read this article. Obviously, do not read this article being a freedom-threatening sort of a statement. So uh, I, I told you before that I, I see this as sort of in the pantheon of uh, great academic paper titles. <laughs> uh, and so I'm curious, like, where did it come from? Like, at what point were you writing this and you're like, oh, my God, you know what we have to call this? <laughs> like, yeah. was it before any words were written or was it once you're about to hit submit, you go, wait, wait, <laughs> we have to call it this? <laughs> what, what, what's oh, the no. backstory on that? Th this, was er this was early on. I mean, this was like how could we not have a cheeky title for a paper about threatening freedom? Like it just, it, it seemed like it was, it was low hanging fruit. It was like, we have to do this. The funny part though is, so we submitted it to motivation science and we get reviews back and you know, they're overall, they're positive. They gave some great feedback, whatever. And one of the reviewers though goes, I see what you're trying to do with your title. It's just not funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. So, of course, like, he was trying to threaten our freedom, I think. Totally. Um, or, or he or she was trying to threaten our freedom. Yeah. So, obviously, we, we decided to keep the title in. The, the editors thought it was fine. And, you know, it's, it, 
I just couldn't imagine having a, a paper about React and such as you said, a sweeping review of 50 years of scholarship without some sort of cheeky, some mm -hmm. cheeky title. And, you know, I think in a broader sense, it does fit my personality as well as Jason's personality, who I, I wrote it with, who was my, my dissertation advisor. Like, we're both, I don't know, sort of fun and kind of, uh, we enjoy the little things in, in in science like that. You know what I mean? It's like I knew that if I was reading it, I would appreciate it. And Jason knew he would appreciate it. He once tried to get like the names of as many superheroes in a paper <laughs> as he could. You know, it's like stuff like that. I think it's the little things uh -huh. that keep they keep you going sometimes. So um, we were very excited when the editors yeah. were, were cool with it and decided to, mm -hmm. to go with it in the published version. <laughs> well, what's great about it, too, is like if you then read the article you have offered supportive evidence of reactance, for you, right? Like that's a boom. That is the boomerang effect, right? right? You told right. me not to read it. If I end up reading it, I go, right. got it. Okay. Interesting. So Brem was onto something. <laughs> right. And if, and if, and you know, citations are, are meaningless, but if citations are anything, this article has been cited like 200 times already, right? In the mm. three mm. years since it came out. So it's like, or I guess, geez, five years since it came out now. Um, 2023. It's crazy. Um, anyways, <laughs> it's been cited quite a few times, right? And I know a lot of that is people write a sentence and then they're like, oh, need it for review C right here. But, you know, perhaps it, it has led people to read it. I, I, I love the part of it with the reviewers because I've often thought of myself and, and we don't have to get into the trait reactance stuff because I know that's a contentious idea among people who study this. But to the extent that there are people who are more prone to reactants, I feel like I'm personally off the charts. <laughs> like, I, I don't know where it comes from, but I've always just had such a distaste for giving up any sense of autonomy. So if if that were me, if, if I was the one getting that review, I would be like, oh, we have to keep that in the title. It's just like the perfect reason to put that in the paper because it's it's like exactly the right evidence of my own petty reactants. Anyhow, all right. I don't know where I'm going with any of that. Otherwise, uh, other than just to say, this has been great. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time to talk reactants. Um, is there any, I'm curious, like things on the horizon for you? Yeah. Things that are like new questions in this area that, that you find interesting? Yeah. Um, so few few kind of avenues that we're looking at now. Um one is, and this is slow going, I, my lab is basically undergrad, so it's, it's just, it takes a long time to run any given study, which is totally fine, but you know how it is. So we're looking at, um, as I was talking about earlier about moderators, we're looking at positive emotions as potential moderators of reactance effects. So if I make you feel pot and I put you in a good mood, are you less likely to perceive something as a freedom threat? Uh, which for various reasons seems to make some sense. There's a, a smattering of evidence around it. We've chosen a couple specific emotions that we think will hopefully um, be the most likely to, to help us find these effects. So that's, that's one thing um, on sort of the, the one side of the theory. I guess the other side is what I was alluding to before, thinking about uh, reactants as a motivational framework. What are the the array of things that may also occur when people become reactants, when their freedom is threatened. Um, you know, again, just not, not just limited to uh, boomerang effects or freedom restoration attempts, like what other affective or cognitive responses do people have um, to becoming reactants? So playing a little bit, I guess, on each, each side of the, the theory in terms of 
more scholarly work. Um, I mean, the other thing I've been doing a lot throughout the, the pandemic is just thinking a lot of, and writing some, written a couple of op-eds and other kind of pieces, just thinking about the role that freedom threat plays and the things that we've been observing over the last three plus years. And most of that has has been in the COVID sandbox because I think it's just so amenable to, to talking about this stuff. Um, but, you know, th there's, I think, a lot of other broad applications. And that's that's gotten me more into this sort of public writing for the public sort of uh, per persona is the wrong word, but, you know, just sort of writing for the public piece of being a, a social scientist. And um, that's fun. I, I've been really enjoying that, too. So that that's obviously, you know, flavored and influenced by the reactants work um, as, as well in terms of the kinds of topics that I that I choose to talk about or, or that I choose to write about. So those are the, the main the main avenues right now, I think. Sounds great. Well, well, we'll look forward to seeing more of that. And thanks again for, for talking reactants with me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Andy. It's been fun. Alrighty, that'll do it for another episode of Opinion Science. Thank you to Dr. Rosenberg for getting down and dirty with reactance theory. You can check out the webpage for this episode for links to his website and other things that came up today. Let's see if I can use reactance theory to my benefit here. Okay. <clears throat> hey, whatever you do, I forbid you from subscribing to this podcast. You are absolutely not allowed to follow at OpinionSciPod on Twitter. And so help me God. You need to lay off the online reviews. I cannot have you telling people online how much you love this show. Did it, did it work? <laughs> or, or was that joke was very dumb? All right, that's it for me. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in a couple weeks for more Opinion Science. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.